This evening's talk is about wise concentration. As I think all of you know, concentration plays an important part in the Buddhist teaching. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And those are mindfulness, investigation, effort, energy, joy, tranquility, flies on the dhammatal, <laughs> joy and tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of the what are called the five controlling faculties. Those are faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And when these are fully developed, they become the five spiritual powers. The Buddha commented that the practice of vipassana without the support of samatha or without the support of concentration is like sending a a minister out to negotiate with bandits without having a bodyguard to protect her or him. So we'll begin our discussion this evening with three Pali words, sila, samadhi, panya. And these translate into English as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many times about these three particular particular aspects of mind as being the essential and indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom or insight. I've never seen a fly do this. It's like right here, (laughs) listening to the talk or something. And these three form the three branches of mental development that are essential to absolutely all forms of Buddhist practice. The development of the first two, the first two of these qualities, or capacities we could call them, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana the deeply penetrative understanding that comes through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights. And just very, very briefly, those are anicca, the impermanent nature of all mental and physical phenomena. The second is dukkha, which is the essentially unsatisfactory nature of all worldly, uh, physical and mental occurrences. 
And the last is anatta, which is the impersonality of all of the mental and material phenomena of existence. And these are the three profound insights that lead one on to the final liberating wisdom at some point. In the Buddha's words, as he often did over his many years of teaching, he starts with a question and then he goes on to answer it. So a question that he often spoke about was, if concentration, samadhi, is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answered that by saying, the mind is developed. And then he says, if the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? And he answers by saying, all greed is abandoned. And then he says another question, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? His answer is, wisdom is developed. And if wisdom is developed, he asks, What profit does it bring? And their answer is, all ignorance is abandoned. And so, concentration, samatha, practice or meditation, and vipassana, insight meditation. In particular, alternating sequences are cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, the exploration of virtue, ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and the practices of virtue, as they deepen and as they mature, we come to understand through our very own direct experience what brings happiness, contentment, and ease on a deeper and more profound level and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease. Ethical discipline is the basis for the development of samadhi or samatha, concentration. Samadhi is the Sanskrit word and samatha is the Pali word. So this term, samadhi or samatha, it refers not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of an exceptional mental health and mental balance. Intimately connected to the understanding and the practice uh, of sila that sila affords us is the recognition of and the seeing of our self-identification in relationship 
to our habits of attraction, which show up as greed and clinging and expectation and attachment, and our habits of aversion, which show up as worry and resistance and anger, fear, confusion, and doubt. These habits of mind are really the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and that lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this very here and now momentary round of world, worldly suffering, the Pali word being samsara. These habits of mind are also what keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration. And these habits of mind are what keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, and consequently keep us from awakening, keep us from liberation. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, galaxies, California, Iraq, dogs, thoughts, rain, snow, feelings, one's aging body, New York, sunshine, your favorite restaurant, (laughs) Delta Airlines, etc., 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 are understood, are regarded as being without substantial sustaining essence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, or graspable self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, We need to purify the mental cloudiness. We need to part the veil, untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs via the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, each of which are rooted in mindfulness and concentration. In speaking to one of his chief disciples, Ananda, in the Kimata Sutta, Ananda asks the Buddha a question and the Buddha proceeds to answer it. Ananda asks, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And the Buddha responds, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda and freedom from remorse as their reward. 
freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are, as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead lead step by step to the consummation of arhanship, to the liberation from suffering, the end of suffering. And in speaking to his nuns and monks directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience and often from some of our most difficult experience and sometimes also from what we may deem to be our mistakes as well as learning from our quieter, pleasant, beautiful, and subtler experiences. We could say that the purification of the mind and the heart is synonymous with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samatha, the active force of concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potentially powerful energy of the mind, which is ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reining the mind in from all of its myriad distractions and learning how to focus it by coming back again and again to the simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or being usurped in unconscious and unskillful ways. The notion of developing the mind lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. And one important aspect of this 
has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be carried off over and over and over again by whatever breezes waft in upon it from any of the six sense doors or from its own unconscious. In light of this, we could ask ourselves the question, does my mind control me or do I control my mind? So for instance, if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind wanders off at the very slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. One of the wonderful things about practice that practice offers us is that remaining focused, practicing to remain focused on a chosen object is actually a skill that can be learned. And like any skill, we learn it by practice, patient repetition, and gradual development. The Vasudhimaga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification uses a number of very graphic metaphors to describe the process of this development and the act of concentration. So I'd like to just share a a couple of these with you. The bee follows up the scent of a flower then dives toward the flower, first stopping and buzzing above it, getting to know it, before diving into it, and then absorbing into it. So a metaphor for for preliminary access and absorption concentration. Another metaphor that's offered in the Vasudhimaga that I particularly relate to because of my own experience in uh, making pottery uh, is this. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed focus of attention of body and mind, staying, sustaining attention and energy, totally undistracted as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with a continued focus of a clear, connected, and relaxed attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which actually continues to be the primary or the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, 
informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. So really quite a a graphic and visceral metaphor for the development and the process of concentration. With the mind, the heart, moving into deepening states of concentration through the process. The power of a clear, relaxed and focused mind, a concentrated mind, it brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again. Re-stimulates the energy and the effort that's needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is. Pure, clear, and calm quite an energizing and refreshing and potentially beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, of concentration, I think it would be helpful for us to begin exploring and learning a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. And some words from the Tibetan Buddhist teacher B. Allen Wallace. Like a telescope launched into orbit beyond the distortions of the Earth's atmosphere, Samatha meditation provides a platform for exploring the deep space of the mind. The wholesome states of concentration, calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana. None of this can grow when the unwholesome mind states of attachment, aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So, for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath at the Anapana spot, and if you're anxious, worried, or filled with expectation during the process, 
calm and joy will actually be prevented from arising. Worry and expectation enslave us. With the practice of concentration, we need to be willing to let go of thought. We need to be willing to not be seduced by thought. One needs to be willing to cut through thought, we could say. Even thoughts that might seem so important in the moment. So it's important, really, to note here that this isn't about kicking out thought. Not at all. It's not about booting out thought. Kicking out or booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. What's meant here, and this is really important, what's meant here is rooted in a clarity of intention. And seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or gets lost in something other than what is intended. This is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. The mind, as you know, can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions, thinking that whatever it is, it's very, very important. I had such an experience during a three-month retreat that was devoted to the development of concentration and jhana that I sat with the Venerable Venerable Pao Aksaido uh, quite a number of years ago now. And for the first week or so uh, of this retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself a fancy cup of tea. And I would take two or three different loose teas and mix them in a tea ball, mix them together in a tea ball. And it was, uh, seemed to be quite an important and seemed to be quite a necessary treat that I needed, that I really wanted. Towards the end of this week, this first week of the retreat, I noticed that there was a box of tea bags sitting on the counter, uh, which was uh, one of the same kinds of tea that I was putting into my fancy mix. It had uh, been sitting there all along, but the mind hadn't uh, connected with it, connected to it at all with any kind of clarity uh, of awareness until that very moment. And so when, uh, when that was seen, for the first time, the thought came up, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea really so important? And the answer came quite quickly, no. It's not really at all important. It's just merely a habitual distraction. So then from that day onward, I just made a simple cup of tea with the tea bag and I drank it with much pleasure and enjoyment. What happened after this, 
is what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of the three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? And it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. And so when that would happen, I would just simply let go of whatever it was at that point. This still happens to me. It's a great question. Is this really important? The development of wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration is that the mind and the heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, and doubt. Classically, the development of concentration, and for some people at some point, jhana, is described as the purification of the mind. And again, as the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, seriously weakens all of the hindrances these unwholesome states of mind. When calm, joy, tranquility, blissful happiness, contentment, peace, and equanimity, the fruits of concentration practice, when these clearly manifest, the unwholesome states of mind are temporarily completely eliminated as well as considerably weakened in the long run. And particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically, so if one's mind inclines toward the attaining of the deeper states of concentration, towards the attaining of jhana. So, taking a little bit of a look now at how the different factors of a growing and deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that can hinder the development of concentration and that also hinder hinder the unfolding of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more uh, 
tranquil body and mind is an antidote to feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and inner obstacles, giving the mind a much greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, applying the attention, aiming and applying the attention again and again to the object. And the Pali word for this is vitaka. And then with the establishment of the mind, with the establishment of the attention on the object, such as the sensations of the in and the out breath at the anapana spot, at the nostril area, this eventually, temporarily, eliminates dullness, sleepiness, and stiffness. The sustained attention of the mind a continuous, sustained attention on the object, such as the breath. And in Pali, the word is vichara. This eventually, temporarily, eliminates uncertainty and doubt within the practice. And it weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. The deeply concentrated and mindful state of joyful zest, bright happiness, elation in the mind, resulting from the developing purity of the mind and heart. And the Pali word for this is piti. This brings a very delighted interest in and liking of the object of attention, such as the breath. And within the development of a deepening concentration resulting in various degrees of piti, ill will is temporarily inhibited. Within the first and second jhana, in a very deeply absorbed state of concentration, there is much delight and liking of the object of attention, which is one aspect of the direct experience of jhana itself. And at this point, attention is no longer particularly just on the breath or absorbed into the breath. And at this point, all forms of ill will are completely, temporarily inhibited. And the deeply concentrated state of bliss, contentment, a sweet, easeful happiness. The Pali word for this is sukha, which in its maturity is not a pleasant bodily feeling, but a blissful mental feeling. And when this occurs to varying degrees with deepening concentration and then much more profoundly in the third jhana restlessness agitation 
regret, and worry are completely, temporarily eliminated. And lastly, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration. Ikagata is the word in Pali. With this occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of concentration and then happening in a much more profound and sustaining way during absorption in the fourth jhana. This one-pointed focus of attention is the experience of a clear, strong, and pervasive, energetic centeredness, balance, and equanimity. During this time, sensuous desire for anything is inhibited. It's at bay. It's not at all in one's field of experience. As samadhi or concentration develops and moves along, the states that corrupt the natural purity and the natural luminosity of the mind and heart when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, which also include clinging and self-identification to pleasant and other habitual states of mind and body, when at least some of this has been very clearly let go, temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished, at this time, one really, truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in connection to one's own practice. And when this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience great inspiration, enthusiasm, and appreciation connected to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, and to the Sangha, and to one's own teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know ourselves as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and know ourselves as at least partially liberated from them, a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude is born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, a joyful zest and the taste of a wholesome elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. With this joy and the knowing of it, without any attachment or personal identification in those moments, the body and mind eventually becomes very tranquil. 
with the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy, these are removed. They disappear in the calm and the quiet. They disappear in the serene pleasure of tranquility. And when we experience tranquility, we feel a serene pleasure. When pleasure is felt, this pleasure of tranquility is felt without any attachment and without any identification, without any self-identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper concentration. And of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non analytical, sustained, mindful presence. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on and on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. And so, in this light, the skill that's being developed is one's ability to resist or deflect, we could say, the influence of raga. Raga is the Pali word that is literally translated as unwholesome passion. And it's often used synonymously with greed, unwholesome desire, craving, attachment, or clinging, which is really the core the core cause of dukkha, the core cause of our human suffering. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked with the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or emotion that has arisen or will be aware of a provocative sense input but will allow these to just roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or to drench the mind with aversion. A similar image that was often used is that of water rolling off a lotus leaf, or water rolling off the feathers of a duck.
the nature of concentration is threefold. Or in other words, there are three types, or we could say three levels of concentration that can develop and that can serve our insight practice. And the first of these is what's called kanaka samadhi, the Pali word for momentary concentration. This is the development and a growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect with one object, then another object, then another another object, one by one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment. Kanaka Samadhi. The cultivation of one's capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice, essential for vipassana practice. The second type or the second level of concentra- uh, concentration practice is upachara, upachara samadhi. It's translated as access concentration or sometimes translated as neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into absorption or just before one moves into jhana concentration. And it can be re-accessed and used for insight practice upon coming out of the absorption of jhana. Access concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity and depth of jhana concentration. But it's not an absorbed concentration. Meaning it doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana. With upachara, with excess concentration, the mind is very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object, even though it contains close to the same intensity of the deeply absorbed jhana states. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very helpful and very useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or the third level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. And when the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. With the attainment of each of the first four jhanas, the mind is temporarily, totally purified of specific unwholesome mind states in relationship to each of the jhanas. While at the same time, unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened in the long run, though they're not totally and finally eliminated. It really is only through vipassana, only through insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states are totally eliminated. 
the development of concentration will quite naturally take place in our vipassana, our insight practice, particularly, specifically, particularly, momentary concentration. Especially when we begin to meet all of the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging, attachment, and identification. But rather with an interested, open-hearted, investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort that is not everyone's inclination or interest and not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana insight practice to unfold. The achievement of jhana concentration may require many months or even many years of single-pointed practice, meditating for many, many hours each day. And this certainly may not be practical. It may be impractical for some people. For others, it might be possible and worthwhile in moving towards the discoveries that lie in wait for us when we apply the telescope of samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being clearly present and mindfully aware of what's taking place with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what's occurring and not making something out of experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. In light of this, I'd like to share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme austere practices and finding that in fact they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it's said that the Bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama, asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? And in reflection to this inner questioning, the image, uh, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. And he remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival 
a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha quite spontaneously and naturally sat up in the meditation posture comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree, observing the scene unfolding before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. And in those moments of not wanting or not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hooves and cowbells rolling on and on amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they worked. And he also clearly heard the beautiful sound of birdsong as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects, the grubs, the worms, and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring and devouring and struggling, suffering and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the tree, open-heartedly experiencing the scene before him. And in his mind, in his heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away. As he silently sat, quite still and secluded from sensual pleasure and unwholesome states of mind, taking this all in without prejudice, without attachment, And finding himself all alone, he quite spontaneously and naturally attained a deep state of concentration. It said the first it was the first jhana through mindfulness of breathing. Experiencing a bright, sweet pleasure, a joyful happiness that was not born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding 
was seated. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of the body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha. Could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on this memory from his childhood, the bodhisattva became filled with energy and a a sureness that in fact this was a footstep on the path. A footstep on the path to liberation. And so he resolved to sit quietly and to press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, and the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified, banished, released, or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them or trying to live through them or by stealing, by hardening oneself and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships. Or by struggling, by trying really hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices. Or by trying to lose one's self in in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, How many times, in small, even in tiny ways, or possibly even in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in mental fantasies, various situations, activities, various relationships that created hardship or maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life and maybe even extreme hardship or austerity. So in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that these situations, these fantasies, activities or relationships 
would somehow bring a sustaining joy, happiness, and ease into your life. Potentially, a certain degree of mental strength might be gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel, the light of liberation, can never be seen, felt, or known with this way. As a young man, in remembering his childhood experience, Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared when banished through the practice of extreme austerities. That this would never bring a sustaining sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, within a mind, a heart that's secluded, free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion and confusion and doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear concentrated and mindful presence and detachment that it's not only okay but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation and that it in fact points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind that's no longer run by the energies of greed clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness and ease of a heart, a mind, that's liberated, awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva came to understand that the development of deep concentration, and for him, jhana, is a footstep on the path to awakening, an important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed in the Majjhima in his discourse to his student Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure? that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure, since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme, austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under a Bodhi tree. And he goes on uh, in speaking with Sakaka saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep 
concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And that with, with each of these pleasurable abidings, and in the Buddha's words now, but such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning equanimity. He tells Sakaka that he systematically then attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed, purified mind is something that young Siddhartha wandered into, we could say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with nothing to cling to, and nothing to push away. And yet, this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We so often have a mind made up, and often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be, how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know isn't true. And we also have, often have a mind made up about what we must have or what we must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up, a mind that in fact clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly, and honestly meeting the moment that we're in. It keeps us in conflict keeps us shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeps us shut off from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the mind, the heart, from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment's experience, both internally and externally. And as I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. 
the current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical or virtuous conduct, the current of samadhi or samatha, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and the practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of this life to the other side, to the side of a peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed heart and mind. The current of samatha, the development of concentration, possibly including states of deeply absorbed concentration, jhana, are beautiful, healing, and powerful states in and of themselves. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind. From the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, so that we recognize the true nature of things. We recognize ultimate reality and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. And so, as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years later, after the story about the Buddha's life that I just shared took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's diligent and very powerful six years of practice. Here we are, exploring and learning from his direct experience and the inspiring and amazing gift and clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with a deep kindness and patience. Each and all of these wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya, and without a doubt are some of the basic roots and forces of purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. In closing the talk this evening, 
with uh, a Mary Oliver poem that speaks uh, to this evening's topic in her quite unique and beautiful way and in relationship to this evening's topic in a somewhat oblique and yet very moving way. And she titled this poem, Such Singing in the Wild Branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself, a wing or a tree. And I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment, while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure. But it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. But one of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit silently for... Just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.